We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Everybody, welcome to the show. I'm Michael Max, and today I'm really pleased to have with me Xander Khan. Yes, that is Wrath of Khan the Khan. He's an acupuncturist in the Portland area, and we're going to be talking about food, weight loss, issues with food, and how Chinese medicine connects with all that. Xander, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to have you. Let's begin. Tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your practice and kind of how you got to where you are. I practice in Portland, Oregon. I practice Chinese herbs and acupuncture and uh, Tuena massage. I like to focus on dermatology problems, digestive disorders, working with people with anxiety and addiction issues. And then I also kind of have a little side hobby of doing uh, kind of sports injury stuff. I know you had Tom Bizzio on the show recently. I'm a big fan of him and his his book and all of his topical herbs are uh, something I like to geek out about. Oh my God! Yeah, his stuff is is so helpful for sports yeah. injuries and really any kind of orthopedic stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and actually, he's got some great a uh, little bit of dietary info in his book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just real basic information. Um, so yeah, I uh, and I have a I have a personal experience which we'll talk about a little bit with um, overeating, food addiction, um, and suffered for many years from that, and you know worked with. Chinese medicine strategies for losing weight and getting into a healthier balance with both food and exercise were uh, a big part of my healing process. And also was seeing a counselor for many years who I still see who really helped enable me to start making better choices in my life. So yeah, I'm happy to talk more about that. Great. So it, it sounds for you the, the weight and, and the weight loss came from a number of different places, partly doing some of your own personal work and partly applying some of the principles that you learned while you were in acupuncture school. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Why don't we start with some of the principles from Chinese medicine, and uh, and then we'll, then we'll get into how you put those together personally. 
Sure. You know, I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind when thinking about the body from a Chinese uh, medical perspective is that the spleen and stomach, which is sort of the organ pair that represent all of our digestive system, more or less, operates best with regularity. So as I was studying Chinese medicine and going through this personal desire to you know, heal some of my own issues around food and weight, one thing that became very clear to me was that eating regular meals, um, both in terms of the size of the meal and the time within the day that you're eating, was incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm a little more flexible now that I've kind of come back to a healthy weight and have more balance in my life. I'm not super strict about it. And I guess I shouldn't say I was ever incredibly strict because you also have to be easy with yourself. But um, eating, you know, that was one of the main things I emphasized in order to kind of regain some health was waking up and eating breakfast within the same time, give you know, between like 8 and 9 and eating lunch between 1 and 2 and eating dinner between 6 and 7. How was that way of eating different from how you'd been eating previously? So the way that I put on a lot of weight and had been overweight for, gosh, I mean, most of my life, really, uh, from from my mid-teens through, you know, late 20s, was um, overeating and binge eating. So I didn't eat fair, I didn't eat incredibly unhealthy. I wasn't eating at McDonald's every day, although I certainly ate at places like that more than I do now, which is to say not at all. But more it was sort of like very irregular in terms of mealtime. So, you know, you'd go out drinking with your friends, sleep until 10 a.m., wake up, uh, you know, eat brunch at 11.30 when you could finally get a table, eat lunch at 3 p.m. or something like that, eat dinner very late. And then for me, my weak spot was always Ben and Jerry's. Ah. Do I would do a pint of Ben and Jerry's pretty much every night, but I would do it at like 10 or 11 p.m. and then fall asleep within a half an hour. Right. And, you know, that was normal for me. So my body really actually adjusted to that. I mean, it wasn't happy about it, but it acclimated. But it acclimated. You know, and mm-hmm. it seems in some cases, I mean, in a lot of cases, our amazing ability to acclimate, which can bring tremendous benefit to us, it also can acclimate to the things that aren't so good for us. And then we, then we can continue to do so. It is pretty interesting, yeah. One of our teachers, Paul Karsten, always said that you use the you use the chi of the organ with which you're born the most of. So, you know, people with really strong spleen and stomach chi tend to be have some sort of like eating issue that they can do for decades without feeling um, terrible the way someone else might if they ate a ben- pint of Ben and Jerry's every night. Or people with robust kidney chi end up often doing lots of drugs that are really taxing to the kidneys, and they can get away with it for a long time. You know, that's that's really interesting. And in that way, our greatest strength is also, in some ways, an incredible vulnerability. Yeah, like an Achilles heel a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So regular meals are important. To, can you go into that, unpack that a little bit more? Why the regularity is helpful? Sure. I mean, I think from a Western perspective, you don't want to overload an organ. Um, So whatever that organ does, but especially the spleen and stomach, they want to do it in a regular way. They want to have a dose of something and then they want to have time to, to process that dose. So, I mean, if you think about it, and you kind of want a balance of sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system activation, right? Right. Um, you want to eat food, and, you, and then you need your body to have time to rest and digest your meal and then go about and use it before just pumping more onto it or not giving it enough. Mm-hmm. Do you see this reflected in 
especially in your experience, do you see this reflected in other places of your life that a lack of regularity somehow increased or led to the problem? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think sleeping issues go hand in hand with eating issues. Um, actually, one of the things that I tend to ask patients who come to me with sleeping issues is what time they're eating their last meal. Yeah. Or or how late they're snacking. It doesn't have to be the last meal. And I mean, I tell you, it's seven, eight times out of ten, if you put two or three hours between your last food consumption and your sleeping, your sleep will get better. Mm-hmm. So, and I and I find that now personally, if I eat too late at night, I don't sleep as well. So I think those two things are really closely entwined, having a healthy sleeping schedule and kind of regular sleeping and healthy eating. And I think that, I mean, that, that the healthy sleeping really feeds into ha- being able to wake up and have a healthy appetite. And I think that's, um, you know, that's one thing people can use without going to see anybody to talk about this professionally. That's the, the kind of tool you can use is, is how is my appetite? If you wake up and you never feel hungry, maybe you ate too late at night. Maybe you didn't just maybe you just didn't sleep enough, but you can kind of work towards that. So it's not normal to not wake up with a good appetite. I don't I don't know that you should wake up being ravenous, but you should want breakfast within 30, 30 minutes to an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's like a good thing to strive for. Right. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a, a sideball question. Mm-hmm. What do you think about intermittent fasting? I've been reading about this a bit and talking with some folks. You know, it's it's a topic that's kind of all over the internet these days, where on occasion, instead of getting up and eating, you may you may skip breakfast. You may even skip lunch, like once a week or once every ten days or something like that, as a way of of sort of shaking up or resetting the system. Have you got any any thoughts about that from your Chinese medicine point of view? Yeah. Um- I think that the, well, the argument that I've read and spoken with some naturopaths about that kind of philosophy is that the, the goal is that you have 12 hours within a day where you're not processing food. That, that, at least that, that's the, the way that I've heard this presented. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my opinion, if I'm eating dinner at 7 or 7.30 and I go to bed at 9 or 10 uh, or 11 and I wake up at 7 and I eat breakfast between 7 and 8, there's 12 hours where I there's you know, 12 hours I wasn't eating anything. So I actually think it, it lines up with that fairly well. Personally, I don't feel the, you know, because I do it that way, I don't feel the need to not eat throughout the day. Mm-hmm. I have experimented with like how I feel better, whether or not I could sort of snack between meals. And that really varies to me depending on how much I'm exercising, how many patients I'm seeing, you know, what else is kind of going on in my life. If I'm fairly busy, I find usually it's helpful for me to like have trail mix kind of between meals. But oftentimes, you know, if I'm if I'm not super busy, I feel much better when I kind of have four or five hours between meals to digest. Right. So there's a there's a time of replenishing the system and a chance for that food to assimilate, go do it, yeah. break it down, and 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 actually uh, be able to pull the nutrient out of it. And that's how we would talk about the balance of of yin and yang, right? You know, yang being the time when you're consuming, it's sort of you're actively processing some food, and then you have yin time where you're not doing that so that your body can, you know, go go parasympathetic, as they say. Right. So this this sympathetic, parasympathetic, which I guess maps really nicely onto yin and yang, mm-hmm. this is an important aspect from your point of view. Is that is that correct? I Yeah, I do think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about how, about your personal journey with this. 
and how Chinese medicine has been helpful for you? Um, you know, so as, as I was saying earlier, counseling was a big part for me as an, as an addict of food, which took me many, many years to even realize that was, uh, you know, a thing. I mean, I felt like, well, I'm not an alcoholic, like, you know, but once I realized that and sought a counselor, it was about a year of counseling on a weekly basis before I was able to start making changes in my lifestyle. I, uh, food and binge eating had such a grip on my life you know, that it was to the point where I basically was an alcoholic. I mean, I would lie about it. It was, it was a secretive behavior. You know, I, would, I, I was ashamed of it. So I didn't want to, you know, when I would eat my Ben and Jerry's, I wouldn't be doing it in front of friends and family. You know, it was kind of like a private thing. And it really kind of ran my life for a long time. And so the, the counseling piece was absolutely imperative for me to start to have a healthier relationship with myself and start to feel like I could make healthier choices and even even have the option of of making a choice because before it wasn't even like I was choosing to go get ice cream it was like someone else was at the wheel entirely so once I had had done a lot of that work which was lengthy process um, I was still in school for Chinese medicine Uh, this was about a year into my program when I started to make some progress and so naturally, of course, I was like, oh, here, well, now, you know, now that I have a little bit of choice, what do I want to do? How do I want to change you know, the way that I interact with food and schedule and all of that? So you know, naturally, I took, um, took the tools that I was learning about in grad school and applied those to my life. So eating regularly was a huge one, um, and, and that includes not eating late at night and you know, giving yourself two to three hours before bedtime, but between bedtime, uh, eating and bedtime. That sounds like a pretty critical number there. That's a pretty critical one for, for me. And, and even if you're not dealing with a weight issue, if you have any kind of insomnia issues, I think that's really important um, to deal with as well, or just stress generally. You know, I've, seen, I've uh, seen this in my practice as well. If people go to bed with full stomachs, they just don't, their body's trying to digest. It's really hard to enter into sleep and get a restful sleep. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it also really feeds into, you know, whether or not you're gaining weight from it or whether or not you have sleep issues, it feeds into, you know, what we talk about as, as acupuncturists as food stagnation. So, I mean, that's a fairly easy concept to grasp. If you're going to bed with a full stomach, it, your food is just kind of sitting there because your, your body is trying to go through the process of shutting down and going to bed and you're not having the kind of up and about energy to, to digest what you've put in there. So it just kind of sits and stagnates. And that can cause, you know, abdominal pain, bloating, poor bowel movements, anxiety, also insomnia, heartburn. Yeah, all sorts of things. All that stuff. Reflux in the middle of the night. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So regular eating for sure is a, is a big one. Um, the other thing that I really focused on was walking. So, I mean, if I had to pick two things that I did that actually were the, you know, tools that I used to, to lose weight and kind of come back into more balance was regular eating and walking. Uh, and my goal was to walk, you know, not power walking, just kind of relaxed uh, walking. Um, I actually did it around Green Lake. I lost my first 30 pounds around Green Lake. Ah, great. Yeah, which is a nice place to walk. It is a nice place to walk if you're familiar with the Seattle area. But, you know, so that I think that's about two and a half miles around, and I did it, you know, three to five times a week. And that also just helped me with stress levels to get through school. Yeah. Chinese medicine school, was it a little stressful? Yeah, a, a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. H- have, you, have you done that? Um, yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's before they geared the program up into its, you know, monster insanity that you guys went through. Oh, okay. 
Well, I'm sure you learned quite enough, sir. Yeah, so walking, I mean, these sound like some simple things. Um, they're pretty simple. And I, and actually, it's it's funny when people, people who've known me for years and years, you know, sometimes I forget, I mean, because I've, it's, I've lost this weight very gradually, very slowly over about three years. Mm-hmm. How, now, how much did you lose over a period of three years? So at my heaviest, I weighed 300 pounds, uh, which was, was somewhere around that's what I weighed when I started school or a little before. And I've lost 90 pounds. So I weigh about 210 now. Wow. Yeah. And it was, a, I mean, it was a incredibly slow process. And there, I, I'm not going to lie, there were plenty of times during that process where I really wanted it to go faster because I was unhappy and not, you know, feeling good. But for whatever reason, the way that I am wired, you know, I, I just kind of tr- trudged ahead, you know, through doing mm-hmm. it this way. Step by step. Man, man, lie, the Chinese would say. Step by mm-hmm. step. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, so I'll see people who have known me for years and, and they'll, they'll be like, oh, my God. And I, I, I will have forgotten that, that I haven't seen them since I've lost weight or something, you know. And they'll, I've had friends that are like, how did you do that? And I said, well, other than the counseling, I stopped eating late at night and I walk a lot. And they're like, wow, that sounds incredibly reasonable. And I say, yeah, it does. Well, and I think there was a third thing that was in there, which is you were in Chinese medicine school. Yeah. And so you're learning all this new stuff about how the body works, how the spirit works, just how we inhabit things and how we heal things. Absolutely. So could we turn a little bit here for a moment and take a look at Chinese medicine, maybe not get super duper granular with it, but you know, some of the broad brushstrokes of what Chinese medicine says about food and what Chinese medicine says about diet that you think mm-hmm. might be helpful for our listeners here. Yeah, I think if I were going to pick two things to talk to uh, Americans about, which are the people that I talk to, I think the the two things that I see that are kind of, well, maybe I'd say three, are really rampant in our culture is portion size, temperature of meals, and flavors. Mm. So so portion size is kind of an obvious one. I think most of us are familiar with the fact that we eat fairly large meals, perhaps larger than necessary compared to most other cultures. I'm not sure that most of us recognize that. Most of us, we live in this culture and even if we go to, you know, say a Chinese restaurant or a, you know, some sort of ethnic restaurant, we're probably being served American-sized portions. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about, yeah, tell us a little more about what you mean by portion, because I'm not sure that everybody w- necessarily understands that. Okay. I think, I think a, a good portion size for you isn't, I mean, it's not, it's not really a specific measurement. I think it's really about learning to listen to your body and feel what feels right to you. And that's something that you can't just, if you've never done it, you can't just do it. It's a, it's a practiced skill. And once you start to just pay attention better to how you feel when you're eating and after you're eating, uh, over time you'll accrue a knowledge of like, oh, that felt like too much, that felt like too little, that felt just right. And I would say the thing that I keep in my mind when I eat now is the the way that I know I have a, a friend from Paris who um, whose family I got to stay with once, and they said, you know, in France we eat until we're just slightly still hungry. Until we're just slightly still hungry. That's a really interesting way to say it. Yeah, and 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 I actually um, feel the same way about going to bed. So that's the kind of thing that I've added. It's like go to bed slightly hungry. Um, and train yourself. I mean, in in you know, we in in the U.S., 
we are like if we're if we're slightly hungry, something's wrong. Fix it. I can relate to that very much so. But I think if you can start to slowly shift your perception around hunger and that and get a little bit comfortable with like, oh, maybe it's okay that I'm just a little bit hungry. You can enjoy that sense of hunger a little bit. And and I, and that was something that I had completely lost touch with over the years was that that hunger was something I could enjoy. To me, hunger was like an enemy. It was like something needs to happen. Let me feed it, and then it'll go away, and I'll feel better. But actually, being hungry is something that's actually kind of quite enjoyable. The same way that being tired after working a hard day, you know, of like manual labor, can be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. If you've ever had that experience, it's like, oh man, I'm I'm not tired and stressed. I'm just like exhausted. I'm just exhausted, delicious. and oh, it feels delicious. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what I mean when I think about portion size. Is sort sort of that that would be my tip to people is kind of eating until you're just a little bit hungry. Leave the table a little bit hungry. Mm. And usually within a half an hour, you won't still be a little hungry because the time it takes for the, the gut to tell your brain that it's actually full is, is 30 to 40 minutes. So it, it actually tends to work out. And if you eat until you're full, you're usually overly full by the time that message gets to your brain. Right. And then, and then you're eating Tums and Prilosec and Right, you know all all yeah. that stuff that you see advertised or, on television, or or just swearing that you'll never eat that much again. Right until until tomorrow. Right, exactly. I want to just let me toss something out here. I don't know if this connects or not. So you're talking about really listening, or, or I'm I'm sorry, you're talking about really being able to listen into what your gut is saying. And there's there's some research out these days and it's becoming increasingly common knowledge that the gut has a bunch of neurons in it and a bunch of um, receptors for serotonin. Mm -hmm. And so it, it literally is as smart as our brain is in terms of uh, being able to sense in that way. Mm -hmm. Does that connect up for you at all with, with what you've just been talking about that there's a, there's actually a kind of intelligence in the belly that needs cultivation. Absolutely, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and ac- and actually, the the style of counseling that I have been doing for the last several years is kind of a mindfulness based approach to the body style of counseling. Um, and and I'm happy to we could put that up on the show notes page. The the actual particular sort of school of thought that that my counselor trains in. Yeah. Now now, could you give us just a quick overview of of what that means to have a this mindfulness based um, sense of your body? So as opposed to working with a talk therapist or a cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapist where you're just kind of going in and talking through issues or doing sort of process work around, okay, tonight when I go home and I feel the desire to go buy Ben and Jerry's, I'm going to do this instead and I'm sort of prepared. The focus of the counseling that I'm practiced in now as a patient is really spending an hour a week feeling what's happening in your body, feeling what emotions come up, and feeling literally physical sensations in your body, and, and providing space for them, and discussing what comes up as that happens. Um, and so it's, it, it's fairly subtle work. It sounds more like inclusion than, uh, than uh, trying to get rid of things. Yeah, exactly. So when I'm talking about the the desire to cover up hunger anytime you feel it by eating, you could you could even just say go ahead and still do that, but give it 5 minutes first. And just take a moment and think what's happening. 
Do I really feel hungry? What does that hunger feel like? Where is that in my body? And sometimes you're actually hungry and you'll go eat. Sometimes you're not hungry and you'll still eat, and that's okay. <laughs> mm. And sometimes you'll realize, oh, I'm not hungry. I'm angry or I'm something else. I'm aggravated or restless in some way. Oh, it sounds like great work. So it, it's really a, a, a very meditative approach. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the counselor that I see is uh, his background is, is as a Tibetan Buddhist um, before he got into counseling. So it's, it's, it's very kind of founded in those principles of mindfulness. Yeah. Um, and it's slow work. You know, it, it takes a long time to cultivate that. So basically, you're, you're, you know, I, I feel like I signed up with uh, an ally who was, you know, helping me build a new relationship with myself. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. It's really refreshing to hear you say that it's slow work. And I say this because you look at any advertisement in a magazine, all the come-ons on the internet, everything on TV, they're always talking about quickly melting off X amount of pounds in a certain period of time. And, and to hear the suggestion here that it's slow work, it's years of change. Mm -hmm. I don't know about other people, but for me, I found that any change that has been sustainable, I mean, really like embodied and sustainable, it takes time. I think it takes time because it's, it's actually a change. So, um, and, and the, the way that I would explain that is when you make a change quickly about something you don't like about yourself, whether it's I'm going to try to quit smoking or I'm going to try to change this way that I have a relationship with food um, or I'm going to try to exercise, and you come, you're coming from a place of not accepting yourself, you, that's when you do it quickly. So you're tr it's like you're trying to get ahead of yourself, but there's no getting ahead of ourselves. Right, and, and I spent years and decades doing just that, where I would, you know, I would sort of go out and I would um, you know, either, I mean, I used to be a smoker, so it could be cigarettes, it could be Ben & Jerry's, you know, I didn't really struggle with alcohol, but I've had nights, right, where you kind of, you do it and then you swear it off for the next three days. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're swearing it off, you're coming from a place of not accepting yourself for who you are in that moment, in that time in your life. Uh, and that's why it's slow work when, when it's sustainable, like you said, when it's sustainable work, it takes time because you're actually changing your relationship with yourself to say, oh, wow, you know, I am this, I am a smoker or I'm an overeater or I am trying to, um, as Pema Chodron says, scratch that itch in whatever way I scratch. And that's okay. And trying to do work to understand and be compassionate towards yourself that there's a reason you got there and if you really want to do the work of changing it's a process it's a slow process it takes time well it sounds like slow change through compassion takes time there's always the there's always the stick which will get some quick change but 
that doesn't seem to be very sustainable once we stop using the stick. It wasn't for me. Yeah. It hasn't been for me in my life either. Awesome stuff. Uh, talk to us a bit about temperature. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that I really, and, and I don't know, this kind of seeps into your uh, collective unconscious as a Chinese medicine student that uh, drinking ice water and eating ice cream and just cold things in general are not something you want to put in your stomach, put in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Well, put in your body. Put in your body. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, that is that's that is a very, you know, to me it seems incredibly normal to the point where I'm a little, I'm a little stunned when I get handed a glass of ice water in a restaurant in January still. Kind of push it away down the table. So I was like, don't, I don't even want you near me, which is probably silly. But You know what? I found, I found a good trick to make that not happen. Oh, what's that? You want to hear it? Okay. So the first, so when a waitress or, you know, wait person, whatever, comes up and they bring me that big glass of ice with a little bit of water in it, uh-huh. <laughs> I, I first joke with them and tell them, oh, I'm sorry, I hate to inform you of this. I am the customer from hell. And they, they always look quizzically. And I go, I, I just can't drink ice water. I've got this dental problem. It's horrible on my teeth. And they go, oh, okay. Oh, there you go. Because people kind of get that. A lot of people have that issue. And so they kind of get it, and it it's not so weird. Yeah. And they get a little joke out, you know, they get a little laugh out of it too. If I say to them, no, I'm sorry, I can't drink ice water, it makes me uncomfortable, they look at me like I've got two heads. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. I, I don't say it anymore. I, I, I just I just let them put it down, and then I ask them, could I also have a glass of hot water? Oh, I love, well, well, see, there you go. You're the guy who's doing this mindful-based stuff. That's that's a be- that's that's great. Just ignore it. May I please have something hot? Yeah. So so, but then the idea around this is, and and the, this is the metaphor I use with patients. And if you have if you have a a better one, I'd love to hear it. Imagine that you're baking a pie. Okay, when mm-hmm. you're that your stomach is an oven, and you're putting a pie in there, and you're going to put it in there for a couple hours or however long it takes to bake a pie, and then the pie is going to be done and you'll be very happy about it. Okay, So imagine you're baking a pie and on the oven rack below the pie, while the oven's on and you're trying to bake your pie, you slide in a tray of ice cubes. Mm. That's, that's how I think now about drinking ice water before a meal or with a meal or just cold things in general for the most part. Puts out that digestive fire. Yeah, you're going to slow the oven down. You're going to create some sort of like dampness in your oven that you don't need. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to cool things down. So, you know, the body is constantly working to keep itself around 98 and a half degrees, right? And it does a dang good job of it too, may I add. It really does, yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and when you are putting cold things in there, especially around the time that you're eating, your body then doesn't have all this ability to go and digest your meal, which actually takes quite a bit of energy because it has to warm you back up first. Or simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So that's that's generally, I think, you know, as Tom Bizio says, ice is for dead people. You use it to freeze things. You do. We, we use it to stop metabolic processes. Exactly. And eating and digesting is most definitely a metabolic process. It absolutely is. So I really encourage people to reevaluate their need for ice in their water. You know, you could still drink room temperature water or slightly cool water and it would be a, a big improvement. And, you know, I, I don't think you can get away from certain cold foods. I mean, certainly ice cream is never going to, you're never going to want to eat that warm. Uh, and one of my teachers always said, okay, if you want to eat ice cream, at least do it after you ate a warm meal. 
And that way, your cold isn't hitting an empty stomach. Um, so there's a slight buffer. Right. You're minimizing I, the effect. Right. I like that advice. You know, but for me, I don't see any, I mean, uh, I can understand not wanting to give up ice cream because it's amazing. But ice water isn't that amazing. Um, you know, curiously enough, I have found in my practice, a lot of people claim they love ice water. Yeah, me too. And, and and to me, it's curious, especially if they have digestive issues or if they have respiratory issues, because we, we see the same thing with respiratory issues. Cold fluids, cold foods yep. can cause a big problem for that. So I, I, I kind of scratch my head around it. But I think it comes back to something that, that you mentioned earlier here in the show, which is a certain kind of mindful attention just to our physical being. On one hand, we might have this experience of, oh, I like the flavor of this, or I like the sensation of this, but then we don't notice what it actually does to us 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes later. That, I, I agree with that. And the other thing I would add is that I think for some people, it actually can, even if they are really in tune, the ice water does actually feel really good. And one of the reasons that is often the case, in my experience anyway, is that because we don't eat on a regular schedule and we kind of eat, you know, in 15 minutes on a work break and we have to cram all this food in and then we get home late and we eat at night, we do actually, a lot of us have issues with food stagnation. And one of the common things, as you know, to come from food stagnation is a little bit of heat. So in some ways, I think the people who are like, oh yeah, I really like ice water, there's some heat going on in their stomach. There's some way in which, even if they were in tune with it, that would still feel good to them, at least in the moment. And then any kind of fallout, like two hours later, they wouldn't really be able to associate with that necessarily. Right, because enough time's gone by. That's, that's a really interesting thought. So that could very easily be seen as a little bit of stomach heat. Mm-hmm. So stagnation. Mm-hmm. Work on getting rid of the stagnation. Then that desire for the ice water might shift. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. At least in some cases. Mm-hmm. And then some people, I find that once they hear that it's bad for them, that it's that it's slowing down their digestion. Even if they liked it, they're like, no one ever told them that before. And then they're like, oh, okay, and it's not a big deal. But some people, yeah, some people really hold on to it. Yeah. I like to invite my patients to do a, a free 30-day trial. Yeah. All right. And just, you know, do an experiment. Do your own end of one experiment. See mm-hmm. what happens for yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying give it up for your entire life. I'm saying as an experiment, get yourself a few data points. Stop with the cold fluids, drink either room temperature, ideally warm. Do it for 30 days. See how you feel. Have a big glass of ice water at the end of it. See how you feel. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great advice. It, it, sometimes it's startling the differences. And, and I was speaking with a practitioner once who practices uh, outside of Berkeley, California, and he said he would even do this. He would do this with most patients, but his chronic pain patients, you know, they, they could have pain in their ankle from an old... Uh, sprain that didn't heal correctly and he'll tell them you know try not drinking anything below room temperature for two weeks and usually they would report back that their pain was slightly better if at least slightly better well that certainly makes sense from the kind of schooling we have and i would i would encourage our listeners who are rolling their eyes and thinking that sounds weird you know try it do a free trial try it for yourself see what happens it's Uh, free and what's the worst that could happen uh nothing yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you learn something. At the worst, you'll learn something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, we see this all the time. We have a lot of weather changes here in the Midwest. It could be 50 degrees one day and uh, 17 the next. 
Wow. And yeah, it, we get some pretty big swings and big changes in barometric pressure as well. And my patients that have uh, any sort of joint issues, arthritis, rheumatism, those sorts of things, migraine headaches for that matter, will often respond really strongly to the environment. I mean, to the point where certain people with certain kinds of uh, arthritis, if the temperature has just made a big swing downwards, every single one of them that come into my office that day, they're going to say it got worse in the past 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're very, very closely tied to our environment, even if we don't think we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very easy to forget, I think, in, in our culture, maybe it's not just our culture, just as human beings, that we are not machines. I find um, that it's very easy to forget that we are living organisms that are within an environmental context and that we respond to things that are happening around us. I, I, that's just something that struck me working with patients, that it's like, oh, the, putting this in my body can do that? Uh, you know, or like you said, like a weather change can, can have this effect on me. And it's, it's easy to feel very, I think, isolated and insulated for, from the world, the way that we live as human beings right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. We, yeah. we do love the metaphor of the machine when really you look at how we're put together. We're really more like a collection of ecosystems. Yeah. I mean, not even one ecosystem. We're a collection of ecosystems. I'm curious, you mentioned that flavors have something to do with our digestive system. Yeah, I actually wanted to add one other thing to the warm food category, which can tie in nicely to flavors, actually. But something that people can do to slowly kind of, and and this would help if, if they have food stagnation issues as well, but to kind of keep your digestion running running well and keep you kind of warm in a healthy way and, and kind of counteract any old damage from eating too many cold things. And that's to make a tea, which you can do every morning, a very, very weak tea made from fresh ginger. Mm. Um, and that's something I learned about in school that you take, you know, a cup of water and a very, you know, fairly thin slice of fresh ginger, not, not enough to make it very spicy at all, just to almost flavor it a little bit and simmer it for 10 minutes and then drink that down every morning before you eat. And that's a really nice way of kind of waking up your digestive system and it'll help warm you up a little bit, kind of activate your appetite, um, kind of prep you for your, your meals for the day. And that's just a really great thing, especially in the winter. It's really nice. Um, just have a little warm up. I've got a lot of patients these days that are that are fond of smoothies. Uh-huh. And of course, one of the things I have to say is, oh, that handful of ice they say to throw in, actually, you can leave that out. Yeah. Um, but again, especially with the seasons, you know, if it's a little bit cool in the summertime, it's not as big a deal. Colder stuff in the wintertime is more of an issue. And, and some people will come in and say, I've been doing smoothies. It felt really good, but now I'm not feeling so good with it. Yeah. And, and I think it is this temperature issue. I suggest that they just put not a small amount, but a fairly large amount of fresh ginger in their smoothie. I think if you're trying to com- combat or, or sort of counteract the cold in a smoothie, I think a good, a big quantity is great. I mean, an ounce, you could put quite a bit in there. Yeah. But I really like your idea of the thin tea in the morning mm-hmm. to gently wake things up. Mm-hmm. You know, really, I, I don't think our bodies or beings really like being jarred and pushed. 
I think so too. And that's the kind of thing, um, you know, I learned that as part of like a Yangsheng principle, which is sort of uh, Chinese for like cultivating life uh, or engendering life. So it's not, it won't do much if you just do it for a week. It's really the kind of thing you want to do for months on end or, or just have as a, that's what you do, you know, for years on end. Just increase the energy of your stomach, increase the ability for you to, uh, over time, I would imagine that when you go and eat too late at night or eat the wrong thing and go out for a burger and a fries and a pint and have a scoop of ice cream that you'll be able to handle it a little better by having those kinds of practices in place. Yeah. And probably notice the effects more too. So flavors. Well, you had asked me in the the kind of questions I was thinking about for the show about, how did you phrase it? I thought it was really interesting the way you asked this question. Oh, we usually think about the influences of food having to do with weight or maybe energy levels uh, in the West and how does Chinese medicine differ. From my perspective, Chinese medicine kind of looks at food in the, in the flavors. So we have the five flavors, which are sweet, bitter, pungent, sour, and salty. And they each correspond to a different organ, organ pair or organ group. So Chinese medicine, I think, really advocates, assuming that you're basically in good health already, to have a balance of those five flavors. So you're not over and I, I think instead of trying to go and make your plate perfectly balanced each time, but you know, have something bitter every day, have a little bit of sour every day. Salty and sweet aren't too hard for us here. Yeah, pretty easy to find. <laughs> and uh, you know, but but paying attention to like, oh, did I you know did I eat really just like salt salty flavor all day or sweet all day? I, I think most of us can relate to the desire to do that. But, you know, bitter flavors are, are actually really um, valued in a lot of cultures in their cuisine. And especially, I mean, in Indian cooking, like fenugreek and some of the other spices that they use, they always have this bit, little bit of bitter throughout the day that they're eating. So approaching that kind of balance with just kind of like pay attention to the other flavors and what do I want to include a little more of. What could people here in America do to it? let's say, add a bit of bitter because we, it's something we tend to avoid or we'll throw a bunch of sugar in it or mm -hmm. uh, what kind of things that have that bit of bitter taste would you recommend that people start experimenting with? Uh, you know, the things that I like to have my patients do and, and that I do myself are I just try to focus on, on dark leafy greens. Um, you know, I find that a little bit of kale or chard or things like that, you know, you don't have to eat a whole head of it. But just having a little bit of that in your meals and then, you know, obviously also not sweetening it when you cook it is a really nice way just to have a little bit of bitter and fairly affordable way as well. Mm -hmm. And it's good for you. Those leafy, green, bittery kinds of vegetables are just so packed with phytonutrients. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big anti-cancer foods. Big yeah. anti-cancer foods. So I, that's actually, I don't know, do you use any other... Any other suggestions for that for your patients for, for bitter? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I'm also a fan of those rich, deep, bittery kinds of, of leafy vegetables. I, I think they're good on multiple fronts. Everything from the fiber to the anti-cancer effects. Leeks are a good one. Um, and actually, I, I usually do that as like a little side dish that I do now. It's just like really simple, you know, olive oil or coconut oil with a little bit of leek and either kale or chard or a mix. And then sometimes I'll put either a little lemon juice or a little vinegar on it. Um, so a little bitter and sour right there together. And then just put it on your plate next to your sweet potato and your you know, pork roast or whatever you're eating. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty good combo. 
it sounds like a good combo. You know, I'm thinking about, uh, again, I think Indian food often has this more than, than a lot of the other ethnic foods that I'm familiar with. They really seem to get different flavors onto one dish in a big way. So you'll have something sweet, you'll have something bitter, you'll have something spicy. You mentioned coconut oil. Are you talking about like stir frying stuff up in coconut oil? I, I like to use coconut oil a lot, and I know um, I know there's some controversy still about the whole medium chain triglycerides and whether or not it aggravates LDL cholesterol and all these sorts of things. I, I'm not really sure. Mo- most of the people that, that swim in the same circles as me who are either have a background in nutrition or naturopathic medicine seem to seem to like it and recommend it to their patients. So I started using it, and I think it's delicious, which is the main reason I do it. It has a little bit of a higher smoke point, too, which can be a little bit healthier for frying. And it's actually not as high, I guess, as, as um, they claim it to be, but it's still a little, a little better than olive oil, which is fairly fragile oil. It, it's um, quite fragile. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to be getting that stuff hot. Yeah, because that's actually so, and I didn't know this until a couple of years ago, that when, you, whenever, when an oil is smoking, it has become a trans fat. So... Do-it-yourself-at-home trans fats. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> now that they're illegal in many states, you can do it yourself. You can do it yourself at home. <laughs> right. Um, but that was I, I thought that was pretty interesting, so I, I try not to get my oil smoking. But, but yeah, anyway, I, I like coconut oil a lot. Um, I, I find it to be incredibly satiating and delicious. And, but I, I also have no problem with butter. So. Yeah, I'm a fan of that. I've been kind of a fan of the fats lately. Yeah, me too. Could you talk to us a little bit about that, how that fits in with the Chinese medicine point of view and, and just how it fits in with your own personal experience? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, when you think about balancing flavors, I mean, fat doesn't necessarily have a flavor. It has the flavor that you imbue on it as a cook or, or maybe a little bit the, the animal that it's coming from or the, the plant that it's coming from. I don't know if I have a good answer to that question about fat from a Chinese medicine perspective. I know... I mean, I can say that I think we are one of the only cultures that has ever gone through a significant period of time where we've sort of advocated not eating much fat. I mean, when I, when I go into the Chinese restaurants here in the Northwest, they're not skimping on it. They're not, you know, they're not taking the fat off the meat. Um, you know, and certainly European cultures are eating plenty of fat and doing quite all right. But I, I'm with you. I mean, I think fat is a incredibly important. Uh, for neurological development, for healthy muscle tone, just uh, all around. Yeah, I've, I've become quite a fan of it lately. And the more that I read about it, and uh, actually the more that I just have switched my own diet and dropped the sugars and mm-hmm. dropped the refined carbohydrates and, and replaced it with fat, I find that I have better satiety. I can go a long time between breakfast and lunch. I feel lighter. My mind's clearer. I've lost a bit of weight. I haven't really changed anything in terms of uh, my movement or anything like that, but I've, I've lost a bit of weight. The curious thing for me about eating more fat is I find that my interest and taste for alcohol has plummeted. Oh, that's interesting. It's it's really curious. I mean, I love my red wines. I really do. And, and I still drink them a, a couple of times a week. But I'm not interested in a glass of wine every night now. And Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's rare that I'll even drink two. One glass, and I'm like, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm fine. I'm in a sweet spot. And the only thing that I, and I don't know if I'm conflating eating more fat and, you know, other things changing. 
but I've noticed that it really has shifted my taste for for the sugars that are in alcohol, basically. Well, and the other thing that's kind of interesting to me is that since alcohol is, from a Chinese medicine perspective, really sort of moving to the liver uh, in a healthy way if you're not overdoing it, and then from a from a chi- uh, from a Western medical perspective, thinking about fat nourishing the tissues and and the you know the muscles and the sinews and the tendons, which are all associated with the liver, that maybe in some way your your liver is like, no, nah, I'm I'm happy at you. like you don't need to like move me too much. You don't need to move me because I'm actually being fed and nourished just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, I, I don't know. I'm yeah. it's conjecture, but it kind of makes sense from my point of view too. Glad we had that little conversation. And, and you mentioned that um, you mentioned that you found fat to be a useful way to dispel dampness, like eating a higher higher fat content in your diet. And I was really curious about that because I think often as Chinese medicine students, we often convey fat as as being sort of aggravating to dampness. Right, and I I think in the presence of sugars and carbohydrates, it is. Uh-huh. Okay. It, this this gets a little bit out of Chinese medicine more into some western nutrition. Sure. Uh, one of the things I've been experimenting with myself lately is a ketogenic diet. So I'm basically attempting to eat 70 to 75% of my daily, you know, calories whatever as as some form of fat. It's a very high fat diet, extremely low carbohydrate, moderate protein. It's sort of like, you know, Atkins gone gone mad. And one of the things about switching to a ketogenic diet and one of the things that will happen metabolically as you up your fat and you drop your carbohydrates is the water weight that we carry, we lose it quickly. And not only that, but but we lose a certain amount of uh, sodium as well. So if you're going to be eating a high-fat, low-carb diet, you have to eat more salt, which is fascinating because generally we're told, don't eat much fat, don't eat much salt, but yet... And again, this is more Western medicine than, uh, than Chinese medicine. If you're eating more fat, less carbs, and less carbs is, is the key here, then your body's going to dump out that extra fluid. And so putting on my Chinese medicine hat, I look at it and go, under certain conditions, fat can be useful in getting rid of dampness. And certainly, I think overeating sweet things, uh, which I would sort of j- broadly label as carbohydrates. Mm-hmm can certainly lead to spleen and stomach uh, retaining water, um, retaining dampness. I think definitely that makes sense to me. Well, both they retain that water, plus any extra glucose in the system is going to get turned into fat in the liver. So, you know, if we're thinking about stored fat, we're not talking about dietary fat. We're not talking about metabolically available for energy fat. But if we're talking about stored in the body fat, yeah, that's dampness. But it comes mm-hmm. really more from sugars than it does from fats. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's kind of cool how we're put together. Yeah, it is. Xander, is there anything else that you want to tell us about using Chinese medicine to, I'm not going to say lose weight, but using Chinese medicine to enter this process, so to speak, of, of being well-nourished and finding your, your own particular balance? Yeah, I think the... The one thing that I haven't really mentioned, which uh, maybe I should have mentioned first, is to be relaxed. Uh, I put together a little little uh, PDF kind of list of the healthy having a healthy relationship with food that we can put up on the show notes page. Ah, awesome. And the first thing on there is says, "Don't worry so much." If you 
eat at the wrong time, if you overeat, if you eat too close to bedtime, one of the you know, it's okay. Uh, one of the worst things you can do for your digestion, and, and this is true with Western medicine as well, is be stressed out about it. And I've seen this time and time again in the clinic and just in life. People who are overly worried about what they're eating or how they're eating it or when they're eating it and just, you know, which could include anything from, oh my God, I shouldn't have eaten that to, you know, eating while you're working. Just kind of any way that you're activating your nervous system while you're eating is going to significantly impact your digestion for the worse. So if you make a food choice that's not great, if you eat late at night, um, you know, I encourage people really to just try to be as relaxed as possible when they eat. Um, and I know that's really hard for some folks who have to work a lot and, you know, they have a 20 minute lunch break and they have to go, you know, five minutes of that is in the microwave, two minutes of that is to go use the bathroom, you've got 13 minutes to eat now. That's tough. But as best you can, breathe, relax, and enjoy what you're eating. I think that would be my, my final bit of advice for people. Ah, great. It's been delightful having you on the show. This is, I'm always interested in, uh, especially hearing about people who have made significant changes in their own life and coming from a personal spot. So thanks so much for being here and sharing this with us today. Absolutely. And, and folks are welcome to use the resources that we're going to put up. And that, you know, if, if anybody is interested in talking with me, you're welcome to get a hold of me through my clinic in Portland here. Great. What's your website address? We're at All and One Acupuncture. Uh, so it's A L L A N D O N E dot com. Awesome. We'll have that on the show notes as well and, uh, and a link to your email as well so people can get in touch. That's great. Thanks, cool. Michael. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. 